You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. and it's time for KVMR's Evening News. Tonight, following the national headlines and KQED's California report, we bring you regional weather and news, another installment of Water News with hydrogeologist Steve Baker, and we close with an interview with Nevada County's Environmental Health Director, Amy Irani, about the kickoff of Platform Kitchen Operations, designed to benefit permitted food entrepreneurs through these uncertain economic times. For their support of community radio, we thank The West Wind, a gallery gift store since 2004, offering inspired, sacred decor, local handcrafted jewelry, watercolors, wind chimes, and garden art. Located at Church and West Main Streets in Grass Valley, The West Wind is on Facebook. Here are tonight's national headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Former President Donald Trump is blasting Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, calling him an unfit leader of the GOP. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, the latest flare-up highlights the deep rift in the Republican Party. In a highly personal attack, Trump said in a statement that the Kentucky Republican, quote, doesn't have what it takes, never did, and never will. He said that if Republican senators stay with McConnell, they won't win again. His statement comes three days after McConnell voted to acquit the former president in his second impeachment trial, but then condemned Trump for his actions on the day of the Capitol insurrection, saying he was, quote, practically and morally responsible. Trump's statement also says McConnell was partly to blame for the twin losses for Republicans in the Georgia Senate runoff elections. Many Republicans have actually pointed to Trump as a reason for those losses, which resulted in Democrats gaining control of the Senate. Barbara Sprint, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says there's no doubt the U.S. ability to pressure other countries on matters of democracy and human rights has been, quote, tarnished by recent events, including the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. In an interview with NPR's All Things Considered, Blinken saying he's received the occasional dig when attempting to express concern about events going on in other countries, but he says the U.S. is moving ahead. I don't feel any hesitation uh, about uh, advancing Uh, our views on democracy and our views on human rights. Because again, I find that there's actually strength in the fact uh, that we're confronting these things openly, that we're confronting our own uh, deficits, uh, our own challenges uh, for the entire world to see. Lincoln pointing to efforts to reverse the actions of the previous administration, including re-entering the Paris Climate Accord and re-engaging with the World Health Organization. Tens of thousands of people remain without power in West Texas as freezing temperatures persist across a wide swath of the state. The National Weather Service now predicting the region will get hit with more snow and sleet. For Marfa Public Radio, Mitch Borden has the story. For days, West Texans have endured ice, snow, and the coldest temperatures the region has seen in three decades. This afternoon, around 50,000 people are without power, and multiple warming shelters have opened in the Midland-Odessa area. According to Matt Johnson, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service, another storm is on the way. It's mostly going to consist of kind of like a snow-sleet mix and some possible freezing rain, but the amounts are a lot lower than this last storm. Johnson says it's not all bad news, though. Temperatures in West Texas should begin to rise by Friday, and some areas could see temps in the 70s by next week. For NPR News, I'm Mitch Borden.
The major U.S. stock market indices ended the session mixed today with losses in healthcare and tech stocks offsetting gains in energy and other sectors. The Dow was up 64 points. The Nasdaq closed down 47 points. This is NPR. A government watchdog has found the substantial likelihood the former leaders of the federal agency over Voice of America and other federally financed international broadcasters committed wrongdoing in hiring a private law firm to investigate top executives. NPR's David Folkenflik reports whistleblowers say that investigation was part of a broader campaign to politicize the agency. Back in August, then-President Trump's appointee as head of the U.S. Agency for Global Media sought to fire top executives. The CEO, Michael Pack, couldn't, so he suspended them. And then, as NPR first reported, he paid the law firm of McGuire Woods more than $2 million to investigate them. The executives argued they were targeted because they objected to Pack's efforts to violate VOA's journalistic independence and to force out foreign employees. A finding of probable wrongdoing is pretty rare. Yet just two months ago, the same watchdog, the Office of Special Counsel, found probable wrongdoing by PAC in pursuing his agenda. David Folkenflik, NPR News. The European Medicines Agency says it's received a request from pharmaceutical company Johnson & Johnson for emergency use authorization for its one-shot COVID-19 vaccine. It's the fourth vaccine to seek approval from the EU. Shots made by Pfizer and BioNTech, Moderna and AstraZeneca have all been granted the green light. The European Union's Amsterdam-based medicines regulator says it could issue an opinion by mid-March. Preliminary results from a large trial suggest the vaccine is safe and offered strong protection against moderate to severe cases of COVID-19. Crude oil futures prices closed higher today, oiling the session up 1% to close at 60.05 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin in Oakland, where a mass vaccination site at the Coliseum opens this morning. Those eligible for the vaccine can now make an appointment online or over the phone. KQED's Julie Chang has more. The site is one of two mass vaccination sites opened by the state in partnership with the federal government. The other one is at the California State University of Los Angeles. It'll have the capacity to vaccinate 6,000 people each day. Grady Joseph is with the Governor's Office of Emergency Services. He says the sites were set up to reach populations that may have more challenges to accessing medical care, like Black and Latino folk. We're really approaching both of these sites from a lens of equity and making sure that individuals who historically have a tougher time accessing are kind of front of the line for these. Bart says it'll offer free rides to individuals leaving the Coliseum after receiving their shot. That was KQED's Julie Chang reporting. Heading south to Los Angeles, in-class instruction at elementary schools could begin as early as this week due to declining COVID-19 infection rates there. With L.A. County reaching the state's case threshold for reopening, it's now up to schools to submit plans for protecting students and teachers. But it's still unclear how many schools in L.A. Unified will actually be ready to open back up. The teachers union and district haven't agreed on how to reopen safely. Teachers have been pushing to have all staff vaccinated, even though that's not a part of state and federal guidelines. Well, the pandemic has hit communities of color especially hard, as we've been reporting here. For queer Latinos, there's been an extra cost, the loss of places to gather. LA Times reporter Andrea Castillo has been reporting on how LGBTQ bars have struggled around the state. 
Earlier, she told me some were already having a tough time before the pandemic. Me being queer and a lot of my friends being queer, we share a lot of this news with each other. And honestly, it just feels like every week or close to every week, a friend sends me either a fundraiser or the news of, of another queer bar closing. So it just it feels like the pandemic has worsened this you know trend that had already been going. I talked to this professor, Gregor Matson, who he's done research on this topic, and he did a study that I think it was just over a third of gay bars between, I want to say it was 2007 and 2019, had closed already. And that figure was even you know significantly starker when talking about gay bars that focused on communities of color. And we focus a lot on the economic loss that businesses are suffering, but it sounds like the closures of these bars, specifically for queer people of color, really carries a big social cost as well. Yeah. One of the things that's changed is as the LGBTQ community has become sort of more accepted into mainstream society, you know, that need isn't what it was before, but that doesn't mean that the need is no longer you know, necessary, that, that it's no longer necessary to have these spaces that are dedicated for the community. And I was really surprised to move to L.A. and to learn that there were only, I mean, really, it was about a handful of places of bars that were dedicated to queer Latinos in a city where more than half the population is Latino. And one of the points that you underscore in your piece, which might come as a surprise to some people, is that members of the queer community who are also Latino don't always feel welcome in queer bars that cater to white people. You know, I think that's changing as well. And it might not even be like an outright sense of being unwelcome. It's more just, you know, maybe a comfort thing. I mean, I can say from personal experience, going to bars that were dedicated for queer Latinos like Cobra in North Hollywood, it was just a sense of, you know, like that quote in my story, it really felt like people there were like your gay uncles and gay aunts. Like it, it just, it, it's a sense of, um, of comfort, a, a place of home that you don't get at these different types of bars. And I think especially, you know, for the people who frequented Jalisco, they might be older, they might not feel as comfortable around all of the young people who are, you know, in the spaces in, in West Hollywood. Um, so this was a place that they could maybe just feel more comfortable in their own skin and not have to sort of compartmentalize, you know, these aspects about themselves being Latino, being gay or queer or what have you. So, Andrea, what are queer Latinos in L.A. and other parts of the state doing now that some of these spaces are going away? One way or another, it is pretty clear that LGBTQ folks are going to find some way to make space for themselves. In the last several years, there have been more of these sort of pop-up nights. But like some of the people that I talk to, they say it's still no substitute really for a space that is dedicated to a certain community 24-7 or, or every night of the week. That was Andrea Castillo, a reporter for the LA Times. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere. 
California is poised to begin the first major restoration project at the Salton Sea. And Eric Anderson from our sister station KPBS in San Diego says it's a long time coming. The state is investing more than $200 million in a project that will create flooded ponds and other habitat on the exposed lake bed at the southern edge of the lake. We'll complete the work over the next two and a half years, I believe completing the, the project in 2023. State Resources Secretary Wade Crowfoot says the Salton Sea has been shrinking rapidly since 2018. California committed to a multi-billion dollar restoration effort as part of a deal that allows water to be sold to cities like San Diego. The project couldn't be started soon enough for Imperial Valley clean air advocate Luis Olmedo. It is a best available control measure to do water habitat types of project, and that's what the federal government requires. State officials eventually hope to cover close to 40,000 acres of exposed lake bed. For the California Report, I'm Eric Anderson in San Diego. Finally this morning, for the first time since the pandemic began, the average cost of a gallon of gas in California is going up. Analysts say it's because demand is rising faster than production and because people are returning to commuting and traveling farther as COVID-19 cases drop. While the price rise is a national trend, California's fuel taxes make our costs among the highest in the country, although still cheap compared to much of the rest of the world. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday, February 16th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening. In Sacramento today, fast food workers gathered outside a Burger King location on Stockton Boulevard to protest unsafe COVID-19 conditions in their workplaces and to demand power to create safer working conditions across their industry. Data recently released by the University of California, San Francisco, shows that food service workers face extraordinarily high risk of death from COVID-19. The workers urged their state legislators to support the Fast Food Accountability and Standards Recovery Act, landmark legislation introduced by Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez of San Diego. The act would guarantee workers at large-chain fast food establishments the ability to shape industry-wide workplace standards and empower workers to hold companies accountable for providing safe working conditions. And here in Nevada County, according to state data released yesterday, almost three times as many vaccine doses have been administered since last reported on January 29th of this year. Nevada County Public Health Officer Dr. Scott Kellerman stated, quote, Through the extraordinary generosity of our partners, like Docomos, and the hard work and collaboration with healthcare leaders such as public health, Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital, and Tahoe Forest Hospital, we have increased the number of vaccine doses administered to Nevada County residents from 5,754 in January to 15,319 as of February 15th, close quote. And taking a look at regional weather, the Nevada City Grass Valley area, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 33. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 53. In the Truckee Tahoe region, tonight mostly clear, with a low around 16 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 37. And finally, in Sacramento, tonight will be mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming clear with a low around 38 degrees. Wednesday should be sunny with a high near 62.
Next, we bring you this week's edition of Water News with hydrogeologist Steve Baker. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. And Steve, uh, welcome to KVMR. Oh, glad to be back. Well, it looks like we're having a rainy Monday and another rainy Friday-Saturday storm later in the week. Is this being described as a Pineapple Express or Atmospheric River Storm, or is it something else? Well, <laughs> I think it's something else. Th- these storms really are, are pretty weak. It's really much like what we've been getting last last several days. Banner Mountain, it's seen, you know, three events, rain events so far. First one was in like February 1st or 2nd, inch and a half. We're just getting little piddly amounts of rain. Uh, February 11th, we had less than an inch, and then we had a little over half inch uh, this past weekend. So, no, they're, they're relatively weak. Penn Valley's numbers are cl- very similar, although their second storm was a little more than ours was on February 11th. You know, our landscapes um, in our location, they really have microclimates that cause these little adjustments so the experience is different but basically these are pretty weak storms but one thing is for sure what we have recently experienced has not been an atmospheric river storm well i thought uh, atmospheric river storms are the main type of storms for uh, this region of california you know from a climate changing perspective these types of rain events are becoming uh, more frequent the the weak stuff we're getting is becoming less frequent. These, these are the types of predictions. But typically, atmospheric river storms, they contribute at four, about 40 to 50 percent of our rain in California. And, and we rely on that stuff for our water resources. The experts at Birch Aquarium in La Jolla, they're saying that the low-intensity rains, like what we're having now, drizzles, little light rains, those are really not expected to change that much. We'll continue to have these through the years into the new uh, century. However, the uh, middle of the road precip that we get, you know, those more generous rains, that will become less frequent. And heavy precipitation, that's supposed to go up. And the the really extreme precip that we can see, that we probably remember seeing back in 2017, that also is going to be increasing significantly by the end of the century. So there's a real shift in the personality of our of our climate here with atmospheric river storms being a, quite a contributor to water and some probably some disasters also. These, uh, I mean, if you think about the disasters, think, think about 2017. We had a lot of atmospheric river storms. And Orville Reservoir, we know the history of what happened there. Fortunately, we have the California Department of Water Resources, Corps of Engineers, and a lot of other people. They've done a great job in correcting that problem. But I'm sure there are more infrastructures that need to be strengthened to, uh, in anticipation of some of these very fierce atmospheric river storms that are going to be uh, coming into our area in years to come. Well, are there any benefits of having more extreme rainstorms that that we can capitalize on? Yeah, two things come to mind. One is groundwater recharge. We've We've talked about that in the past. You direct the runoff when it rains, the stuff where the rain falls on the ground. You direct that runoff to the fields that are located in low-lying areas. And that's where you allow that water to percolate into the ground, filling up your aquifers, which means that you're, you can pump more water from those aquifers. That, that is a big, big benefit that we're looking at here in, in the state of California right now. Uh, usually that entails a, a conveyance system that will move that water when it rains from a large area, collect it in an impoundment of some sort, and then move it through canals and such 
to an area where you have these percolation zones. We don't have all those created in our state yet, so that's something yet to come. And then the, uh, the second benefit, that would be uh, a water quality type of issue. Explain that. Yeah, wet, wetlands restoration. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but, uh, well, in general, society does have a problem. We have a lot of problems from, from a pollution standpoint, but there are high amounts of nitrogen loading that goes on. And it's because of sewage runoff, and it's also because of fertilizers from how we fertilize our, our fields where we grow our food. When these conditions exist, it creates a depletion of oxygen. Well, what do you think that does? I mean, that, that hurts the lives, lives that are living in our rivers, the lakes, the coastal areas, and it, in, it really induces uh, harmful algae growth. You know, the algae uh, blooms that we hear about that, that kill things. So, so it's a problem. Now, the Century Valley, they would be a great candidate for these wetlands restoration uh, types of programs. They have the knowledge base. They've dealt with the Kesterson Reservoir issue of the past where we had selenium issues and have, have learned a lot. It's, it's a lowland area. It's where the fertilizers end up accumulating. They could very much uh, benefit by a wetlands restoration. You know, I remember back in the day, probably for me, it was the mid-1990s, I was on a pilot project for the state of California. We had the National Laboratories involved, and we were looking at a blighted piece of property near Antioch that had issues of hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, heavy metals, um, petroleum hydrocarbons, and we were seriously looking at constructive wetlands. We were going to create a wetlands that could deal with all of these problems on the property, and it would be very, very effective. And uh, I don't, I don't know if you've heard this, Paul, but people have referred to wetlands as the Earth's kidneys. <laughs> okay, because it does such a good job. Mankind cannot replicate what benefits exist in a wetlands. So, I see that as a great benefit. And as we have more water runoff from atmospheric river storms, uh, maybe we can harness the value of that's found in a wetlands. And incorporate that into some of our of our, our responses, our mitigations to to some of the negative issues that exist. Any uh, any information on snowpack at this point? You know, I haven't heard any reports yet. Uh, it's it is we are getting better, but I think we have a long ways to go to catch up. Uh, we had such a slow start this wet season. Thank you, Steve. Ah, you're welcome. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker, and you can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. Coming up next, Amy Irani speaks with Felton Pruitt about the county's new platform kitchen operations. We're talking with the director of the Environmental Health Department for Nevada County, Amy Irani. Today, we've got uh, one big new topic to talk about, which is platform kitchen operations. Now, I'm just guessing that this involves, if you already have an existing kitchen setup that's approved by the county to serve food to the public, but you're not using it, you can then allow other people that might want to cook food come in and use it. Is that kind of the whole general thing? In a nutshell, yes. You are an existing kitchen, but for a PKO, a platform kitchen, and I'll get where, I'll, I'll let you know where the platform came from, but an existing restaurant has the capability of becoming a commissary kitchen. And a commissary kitchen, you can almost look at it like a host kitchen, but we don't use your term host because 
a commissary kitchen, if another chef or another operation came into that brick and mortar, say it was my restaurant, I couldn't cook food at the same time, say you were there, Felton, with your culinary business. So it's one operation at a time. So with a platform kitchen, it's kind of a launching platform. That's where the term platform kitchen came to. So the idea is my restaurant has a certain set number of hours, Monday through Sunday or whatever the hours are. And then when I'm closed, a platform kitchen operator could come in and actually use the kitchen via a commissary agreement, use the entire commercial kitchen, cook their culinary product, and then have a station. It would be integrated into the restaurant. Some restaurants already have an area where customers can walk in and do a, you know, to-go order. And so the PKO could use that station, have folks walk in, place an order, and wait. Preferably, we'd like to see them advertise online, and then people can just come in when, when they texted or, hey, your order's ready, they walk in, get their order, and go. So it's strictly a to-go operation, curbside delivery. The PKO operator would not have the ability to seat in the restaurant, but it opens the door for a lot of folks that don't have $100,000 to sink into a brand new restaurant. What's in it for an existing restaurant to go along with this? I mean, they're already cooking their stuff during their business hours. What's the incentive for them then to keep their place open and let someone else come in and use their kitchen? You got it. That's an excellent question. When you look at the industry of food and all of the diverse culinary owner-operators we have in Nevada County, just like all over the state or the country, they have an opportunity to actually promote their own industry partners. And so what they would do was offer their facility, it could also be advertised that they're, you know, having this individual or this culinary type of fare come into their restaurant, and it kind of gives them additional advertising. It puts it out to the community that they're there supporting an entrepreneur who wants to launch their culinary gift. And I think it's beneficial all around for the community because then it bolsters different types of food flair that people can enjoy and might bring more business into the environment, plus help some of the the small caterers or temporary food facility operators that don't have a way to make any revenue can come in and do it from this avenue and stay alive and stay afloat. Is there a profit-sharing aspect to this? You mean for the brick and mortar and the PKO? Yes. Nothing that we would kind of assist with. That would be between the PKO and the, you know, kind of the the business owner or the, the restaurant owner. Our goal with this was just to provide another chance for an entrepreneur or struggling temporary food facility operator to showcase their food, bring in some financial support for themselves and their family, and offer something unique in addition to what we already have here in Nevada County. So if someone is interested in getting involved in this, who do they contact? Where do they go? What website do they log into? We've got a great group of PIO, public information folks at the county, Taylor and Vera, and they're working to kind of showcase this on social media. They did a blast out on our website. So you can go to mynevadacounty.com 
type in PKO. It'll probably take you to our website. You can always give us a call at 530-265-1222, and we'll be happy to walk you through that process as well. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Amy Irani, the uh, director of the Environmental Health Department here in Nevada County, about the new platform, Kitchen Operations. Thanks for coming up with another idea to help work with our local uh, food vendors. Thank you, Felton. I really appreciate it. And that's our newscast for this evening. If you'd like to hear it again, you can do so on our website, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. Educationally Speaking is next with Democracy Now! at 7 p.m. Thanks for listening. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a great evening.